when new teens come to my branch, I try to sort of gauge how comfortable they may or may not be. If it looks like they're a quiet person who wants to browse privately, I'm not going to you know, jump on their back and be like, hey, would you like to see the cool new fantasy series? Like, you know, take it, take it one by one and see how people feel. Bianca Hezekiah is a young adult librarian at the Eastern Parkway branch in Crown Heights. A big part of her job is interacting with any teen from the neighborhood who comes into the library. She gets to know them. She helps them find books and resources. And, you know, you want to put yourself forward as someone who's friendly, someone who's accessible, but also someone understanding who's not going to follow you around. Like, we've all had that experience where you go into a store and someone's like, hi, can I help you? Let me know if you need any help with anything. Are you being helped right now? And you're like, I am trying to help myself, <laughs> you know? So you don't, you don't want to be that person at a library, but you also want the people to know, like, I am here to help you through some information or for, to help you browse, um, but you know, come to me when you're ready. Recommending books for teens is a challenge anywhere, and especially in a neighborhood where distinct communities intersect. Crown Heights is home to a significant population of Hasidic Jewish people, Caribbean people, and African American people. So the teens who come into the library might be navigating their own reading interests, as well as the religious and cultural values of their communities. Bianca described one Jewish teenager who came to her branch pretty often to ask her for new books. She likes fantasy series, but also is very clear about what her family is willing to let her read. There are different sorts of kosher criteria, I guess. As with many religious communities, there are certain things that are okay to read and certain things that are not. Figuring out how to recommend a book to a teenager a book that the teenager will like, but also one that her parents will approve of, especially in the fantasy genre, can be challenging. So Bianca does her best to figure out the parameters by walking that person through the options available at the library. And I said, how about this series? And she was like, I read that. And I said, what about these? She said, oh, I read those. So I'll say, okay, what about this? She said, oh, I tried that, but then my mom said that I couldn't read it anymore. And it wasn't a question of like sneaking, she just said, no, not this. And of course, as a teen librarian, I want to be supportive of like, you know, this is a, a big growing time. You want to explore, see, you know, what else is out in the world. And it's a great way to do that by exploring through books. But you also got to know, like, if I said I don't want that, it means that I'm not interested. Eventually, she started coming in and saying, well, do you have anything by this author? Well, what about this author? Well, what about that author? Because I think she went to her teachers or she went, you know, to her parents and said, well, you told me I can't read these. Well, then what can I read? And I was like, we don't have anything by those people, <laughs> but I can see if I can request um, requests for it to be ordered. And, you know, one teenager that has this situation, it's more than likely that there are going to be another, a bunch of other teens who feel similarly. Bianca puts in requests for books pretty often because having books that are relevant to the community is one of the most important ways the library can show that it is a welcoming place, a place for everyone. And also a place where you can explore new ideas if you want to. Right. It's important that a library has all kinds of books. That doesn't mean you have to read them, of course. In the case of this teenage patron, she was able to say, no, I can't read that. 
sometimes, though, patrons get upset by books or materials on the shelves that they're not going to read and don't agree with. And Bianca has another story about that kind of situation. Around Halloween, she'd set up a thematic display in the young adult section. I put up our witches and demons and murder, oh my, (laughs) little mini book display, basically like supernatural fiction. But one guy was very upset about the display. He was like, you're a library. You shouldn't be putting books about murder and demons and promoting demons like this. And, you know, that's not right. That's not okay. I'm like, okay, yes, it's October. That's why that display is up. Um, I think what I ended up saying was we have all kinds of stories here at the library. I think I I ended on something like that because, you know, I wasn't going to take the display down. You could be offended by any kind of book (laughs) at the library if you're someone who's looking to go in and be offended by something. That's what we're going to dig into today. We're calling this episode Something to Offend Everyone. I'm Krissa Corbett-Kavoris. And I'm Felice Bell. You're listening to Borrowed. There's a quote from a librarian named Joe Godwin that's often thrown around in library school. It goes like this. A truly great library contains something in it to offend everyone. Which basically means that if a library is truly committed to representing different viewpoints, then there are going to be books on the shelf that you don't agree with. And that just means it's a really good collection of books. At Brooklyn, we have a ton of materials, 4.1 million by our last count. And here's the thing, library collections change all the time. It's not just like once they're on the shelf, that's it. Like we have to relook at everything we purchase all the time because the times change, culture changes, you know, history moves around. And even though the books don't talk and don't scream and yell and ask for help, we have to pay attention to them. Angie Miraflor is the Director of Customer Experience at Brooklyn Public Library. And she told us about an event that doesn't happen often at BPL. So um, a few months ago, we had um, a request for reconsideration, which is what our forms called, um, turned into us. And it was challenging a children's picture book. A patron found a book on our shelves that they thought shouldn't be there. So the patron challenged it. And the challenge ended up with Angie, whose job it is to figure out what to do. And by the way, books get challenged all the time in libraries. Harry Potter gets challenged for witchcraft. To Kill a Mockingbird gets challenged for violence and racist language. And a children's book called Entango Makes Three, about two male penguins raising a baby penguin together at New York's Central Park Zoo, that one gets challenged a lot. But this particular book challenge stuck out to Angie. The challenge was that some of the images and the texts had um, some comments towards certain like racial groups that were inappropriate or pictures depicting certain ethnic groups in in ways that uh, could potentially be offensive. It was traditionally an author that people really go towards when they think of children's literature and then to find out that maybe one of the author's less popular books had some content that was very questionable. I think that's what made that specific thing unique and what started such a complex discussion. The book was If I Ran the Zoo by Dr. Seuss. And just to say, this isn't the first time that the issue of Dr. Seuss's racist drawings has come up. It's a pretty well-documented phenomena. 
But it might be surprising because his books are full of rhymes and whimsical drawings, and kids are still reading them today. But it doesn't matter what the title is. Whenever a book is challenged at the library, it's taken seriously. The patron's challenge sets off a pretty involved process to review the book. Our first step is that we have a collection development committee, and part of their job is to look at these forms and just do the research. They look at things like our collection development policy, our um, collection maintenance procedures, so like the procedure of how we deselect materials from our collection. Uh, so they look at internal stuff, but they're also looking at um, more national types of research. So they all looked up if that book had been challenged in other libraries and what their response was. After all the research, the committee makes a recommendation to the chief librarian, and then he and Angie make a final call. And for this particular challenge... The decision was to keep the, the title on the shelves. And I think in this case also there's a historical part about it too. You know, in the past these groups were uh, viewed in a certain way and we need to learn from what happens in the past. We can't delete it. Deleting it is probably really dangerous, you know, because that means the potential of it happening again is very high. This gets at a core belief held by many libraries, not just ours. The idea that libraries should challenge censorship, that libraries should be saying, we know you're not going to agree with everything in the library, but it's still important to reflect different viewpoints and different moments in history. Right. And this value is actually in our Library Bill of Rights. Which is something that most people might not know about, that there is a Bill of Rights for libraries. And it's an interesting document. It was created by the American Library Association, the ALA, in 1939. The 1930s, if you remember from history class, was a pretty terrible decade for many people, but also a terrible decade for intellectual freedom. Fascism was on the rise in Europe. Book burning was happening in Germany. And in the United States, a tariff act was passed that included a ban on importing, quote, obscene or immoral articles. And in the midst of all this, a bunch of people who ran libraries across the United States got together and decided to do something about what they saw as a dangerous erasure of ideas. You can get a sense of the time period in the preamble to the original 1939 document. It reads, Today, indications in many parts of the world point to growing intolerance, suppression of free speech, and censorship affecting the rights of minorities and individuals. Mindful of this, the Council of the American Library Association publicly affirms its belief in the following basic policies. A very impressive start. For sure. And as necessary today as it was in 1939. The proclamation was followed by a series of values. Today, there are seven principles in the Library Bill of Rights. And what's interesting is that sometimes values within the Bill of Rights conflict with each other. Specifically, the two that we want to talk about are the idea that public libraries should be for everyone, no matter your, quote, origin, age, background, or views, and the idea that libraries should be challenging censorship. So if you have a patron who's offended by material, like the patron in Crown Heights who didn't want to see demons in a book display, or the patron who didn't want If I Ran the Zoo on the shelves, then we have to question whether those people feel welcome in the library. It's sometimes a murky line to walk between making sure that our collections represent a wide array of viewpoints 
and also ensuring that the patrons walking into our buildings feel actively welcome here. One way that libraries have answered this question is by making sure that the library collection has books with contrasting narratives. That's something Angie brought up. How much of a democratic institution are we if we're not giving people all the information they need to make an educated decision, right? And I think that's where libraries come in. Like we are the ones that need to provide as much information as we can about a topic on both sides, whether you wanna hear it or not. And then you, and then then it's up to you to make that decision of what you know what your opinion is or what your vote is or what your whatever. So if we're going to have Edgar Allan Poe's The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym on our shelves, we're also going to have Toni Morrison's Playing in the Dark, which analyzes and interrogates Poe's problematic racial and cultural depictions. And the rules aren't set in stone either. History changes, and what makes it into the realm of acceptable is also changing. So in this case, BPL decided to keep If I Ran the Zoo on the shelf. But about a decade ago, another children's book with racist depictions of black people was taken off the shelves after it was challenged. That book was Tintin Okongo. One common defense of Tintin Okongo is that the book reflected the colonial attitude of the time. And thankfully, times change. I think the point is that the lines for these things are always shifting. Yes, libraries are places for intellectual freedom, and we will continue to challenge censorship. But also, history moves along and new paradigms emerge. Exactly. There's been this ongoing conversation among librarians to challenge the idea that libraries are, quote, neutral spaces. To ask whether that plea for neutrality just allows the dominant perspective to stay dominant. So perhaps the question should be, What can libraries do to disrupt dominant narratives and take a stand as institutions with our choices, with the materials on our shelves, with our programs? And a good example of how a public library shows its hand is the controversy over Drag Queen Story Hour. Drag Queen Story Hour is an organization with local chapters around the world. Since the organization started in 2015, a lot of public libraries across the country have embraced the program. Brooklyn Public Library hosts regular Drag Queen Story Hours in some of our branches. It is exactly what it sounds like, drag queens reading picture books to kids. It is a joyous event, and the goal is really to encourage acceptance of difference. Recently, though, there have been protests outside of some libraries that host Drag Queen Story Hour. In February, protesters and supporters gathered outside North Public Library in Evansville, Indiana. Here's sound of that protest from 14 News in Evansville. On one side of the entrance to this little library, protesters held signs with slogans like, Stop Queering Our Families and Protect Our Children. And on the other side, supporters held rainbow umbrellas, one person dressed up as Cinderella to show their support. And you don't have to go as far as Indiana to see culture wars come to a head at the library. In Port Jefferson, Long Island, protesters showed up at another Drag Queen Story Hour. Things were civil, and of course people have the right to protest peacefully, but it just underscores this point, that libraries aren't really neutral spaces. I think libraries do take a stand, and at least at Brooklyn Public Library, we are saying that gender play is okay, and that we want people who identify differently to feel welcome here. Take it from Yolanda. What I like to uh, 
do a drag queen story hour is dress like a monarch butterfly. So I've got uh, a blutter- butterfly dress and blutter- butterfly wings and butterflies in my wig. <laughs> Yolanda is a storyteller with Drag Queen Story Hour. And a few months ago, she read and sang to an audience of gurgling infants and wandering three-year-olds at Central Library. Lucy, Lucy, oh Lucy, banana, banana, oh Lucy. She sang the name song and read two children's books that have been challenged at libraries. One was Antango Makes Three about the Central Park Penguins, and another was I Am Jazz, a book about a transgender girl learning to embrace her identity. For Yolanda, the fact that all of this was happening at the public library had special resonance. I know there are those that protest, you know, what we do. But the fact that the library supports us is an incredible gift, I think, and I think it's very wise. Because people come to the library, which is a public safe space, and they bring their kids and they learn some things, they ask questions, um, and then they go back into their lives and their communities, their churches, their schools, and they have a better understanding uh, when someone else is afraid and they're able to speak to those that are afraid and have something to to really share, you know. That's it for this story. Up next, we'll have librarian Lee Hurwitz with an exciting list of book recommendations. For Book Match this episode, Lee has gathered a series of graphic novels and manga books for teens. We hope something offended you. Enjoy! So, in thinking about this episode, which is about censorship... I thought about um, my experience as a librarian with a very common form of censorship, um, and largely that is around books that um, talk about sexuality and sex, Um, specifically comics, because they're so visual, um, often they are targeted for censorship or a soft ban because it's easy to to open to a page and without knowing the context of anything. Um, decide that it's quote-unquote inappropriate. So comics can be actually a really great way in general to elevate voices and experiences that are not um, being represented in uh, prose novels or in in media in general. The common theme through these titles is that they're all queer. Um, They have characters that are gay, uh, trans, Gender queer, non-binary, um, gender non-conforming. Girlfriends by Milk Morinaga is YA Yuri manga. Yuri is girls' love, so it's uh, manga about characters who are uh, gay and girls. This one is about uh, Mari and Akko, who are in high school, and Mari is kind of shy and quiet. Akko is outgoing and friendly, and they become friends, and they start to realize their attraction to each other and kind of are um, navigating through what that means. The next book I chose 
is Not Your Mother's Meatloaf, a sex ed- education comic book. Um, it's edited by Saya Miller and Liza Blay. It's a compilation of autobiographical comics and um, in between each of the comics that was part of each different issue of the zine um, are little essays from uh, Saya and Liza that kind of talk about their own personal experiences and their reflection on each of the comics that are included here. Um, It's called a sex education comic book, but it's less about facts and more about personal experiences, which I would argue are part of a good sex education. The next book I chose is Spit and Passion by Christy C. Road. It's about Christy growing up uh, in the early 90s in Miami um, in a Cuban-American family and coming out to herself as queer and also discovering punk music, specifically Green Day. Fresh Romance started as a crowdfunded digital comic. And so there are stories in here all by different writers and um, cartoonists. And they're all broadly romance stories, but some of them are um, historical fiction. Some are a little more um, speculative. And uh, this is full color. But again, all of the um, the art is kind of is very different in each story, as is the writing style. So um, there's a lot in here. Borrowed is brought to you by Brooklyn Public Library. You can find a transcript of this episode at our website, bklynlibrary.org/podcasts, as well as a link to the bookmatch list. We've also put links there to a few articles about the idea of challenging censorship. So take a look. Borrowed is produced and written by Virginia Marshall with help from Fritzi Bodenheimer, Jennifer Prophet, Meryl Friedman, and Robin Lester Kenton. Our music composer is Billy Libby. We are recording from Central Library's Information Commons Recording Studio. And guess what? If you have a BPL library card, you can reserve time here too and make your own podcast. Until next time. Thanks for listening.